Letter sixty six of Moral Letters to Lucilius by Lucius Hanias Seneca, translated by Richard M. Gummier. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. On various aspects of virtue. I have just seen my former schoolmate, Clarinus, for the first time in many years. You need not wait for me to add that he is an old man, but I assure you that I found him hale in spirit and sturdy, although he is wrestling with a frail and feeble body. For nature acted unfairly when she gave him a poor domicile for so rare a soul. Or perhaps it was because she wished to prove to us that an absolutely strong and happy mind can lie hidden under any exterior. Be that as it may, Clarinus overcomes all these hindrances, and by despising his own body has arrived at a stage where he can despise other things also. The poet who sang, Worth shows more pleasing in a form that's fair, is, in my opinion, mistaken. For virtue needs nothing to set it off. It is its own great glory, and it hallows the body in which it dwells. At any rate, I have begun to regard Clarinus in a different light. He seems to me handsome, and as well set up in body as in mind. A great man can spring from a hovel, so can a beautiful and great soul from an ugly and insignificant body. For this reason, nature seems to me to breed certain men of this stamp with the idea of proving that virtue springs into birth in any place whatever. Had it been possible for her to produce souls by themselves and naked, she would have done so. As it is, nature does a still greater thing, for she produces certain men who, though hampered in their bodies, nonetheless break through the obstruction. I think Clarinus has been produced as a pattern, that we might be enabled to understand that the soul is not disfigured by the ugliness of the body, but rather the opposite, that the body is beautified by the comeliness of the soul. Now, though Clarinus and I have spent very few days together, we have nevertheless had many conversations, which I will at once pour forth and pass on to you. The first day we investigated this problem. How can goods be equal if they are of three kinds? For certain of them, according to our philosophical tenets, are primary, such as joy, peace, and the welfare of one's country. Others are of the second order, molded in an unhappy material, such as the endurance of suffering and self-control during severe illness. We shall pray outright for the goods of the first class. For the second class we shall pray only if the need shall arise. There is still a third variety as, for example, a modest gait, a calm and honest countenance, and a bearing that suits the man of wisdom. Now, how can these things be equal when we compare them, if you grant that we ought to pray for the one and avoid the other? If we would make distinctions among them, we had better return to the first good and consider what its nature is. The soul that gazes upon truth, that is skilled in what should be sought and what should be avoided, establishing standards of value not according to opinion, but according to nature. The soul that penetrates the whole world and directs its contemplating gaze upon all its phenomena, paying strict attention to thoughts and actions equally great and forceful superior alike to hardships and blandishments, yielding itself to neither extreme of fortune, 
rising above all blessings and tribulations, absolutely beautiful. Perfectly equipped with grace as well as with strength, healthy and sinewy, unruffled, undismayed, one which no violence can shatter, one which acts of chance can neither exalt nor depress. A soul like this is virtue itself. There you have its outward appearance. If it should ever come under a single view and show itself once in all its completeness. But there are many aspects of it. They unfold themselves according as life varies and as actions differ. But virtue itself does not become less or greater. For the supreme good cannot diminish, nor may virtue retrograde. Rather, it is transformed, now into one quality and now into another, shaping itself according to the part which it is to play. Whatever it has touched it brings into likeness with itself, and dies with its own color. It adorns our actions, our friendships, and sometimes entire households which it has entered and set in order. Whatever it has handled it forthwith makes lovable, notable, admirable. Therefore, the power and the greatness of virtue cannot rise to greater heights, because increase is denied to that which is superlatively great. You will find nothing straighter than the straight, nothing truer than the truth, and nothing more temperate than that which is temperate. Every virtue is limitless, for limits depend upon definite measurements. Constancy cannot advance further any more than fidelity or truthfulness or loyalty. What can be added to that which is perfect? Nothing. Otherwise it was not perfect to which something has been added. Nor can anything be added to virtue, either. For if anything can be added thereto, it must have contained a defect. Honor also permits of no addition, for it is honorable because of the very qualities which I have mentioned. What then? Do you think that propriety, justice, lawfulness, do not also belong to the same type, and that they are kept within fixed limits? The ability to increase is proof that a thing is still imperfect. The good in every instance is subject to these same laws. The advantage of the state and that of the individual are yoked together. Indeed, it is as impossible to separate them as to separate the commendable from the desirable. Therefore, virtues are mutually equal, and so are the works of virtue, and all men who are so fortunate as to possess these virtues. But, since the virtues of plants and of animals are perishable, they are also frail and fleeting and uncertain. They spring up, and they sink down again, and for this reason they are not rated at the same value. But to human virtues only one rule applies, for right reason is single and of but one kind. Nothing is more divine than the divine, or more heavenly than the heavenly. Mortal things decay, fall, are worn out, grown up, are exhausted, and replenished. Hence, in our case, in view of the uncertainty of their lot, there is inequality. But of things divine, the nature is one. Reason, however, is nothing else than a portion of the divine spirit set in a human body. If reason is divine, 
and the good in no case lacks reason, then the good in every case is divine. And furthermore, there is no distinction between things divine, hence there is none between goods either. Therefore, it follows that joy and a brave unyielding endurance of torture are equal goods, for in both there is the same greatness of soul relaxed and cheerful in the one case, and the other combative and braced for action. What? Do you not think that the virtue of him who bravely storms the enemy's stronghold is equal to that of him who endures a siege with the utmost patience? Great is Scipio when he invests Numantia, and constrains and compels the hands of an enemy whom he could not conquer to resort to their own destruction. Great also are the souls of the defenders, men who know that, as long as the path to death lies open, the blockade is not complete, men who breathe their last in the arms of liberty. In like manner, the other virtues are also equal as compared with one another. Tranquility, simplicity, generosity, constancy, equanimity, endurance. For underlying them all is a single virtue, that which renders the soul straight and unswerving. What then, you say, is there no difference between joy and unyielding endurance of pain? None at all. As regards the virtues themselves, very great, however, in the circumstances in which either of these two virtues is displayed. In the one case, there is a natural relaxation and loosening of the soul. In the other, there is an unnatural pain. Hence these circumstances between which a great distinction can be drawn belong to the category of indifferent things, but the virtue shown in each case is equal. Virtue is not changed by the matter with which it deals. If the matter is hard and stubborn, it does not make the virtue worse. If pleasant and joyous, it does not make it better. Therefore, virtue necessarily remains equal. For in each case, what is done is done with equal uprightness, with equal wisdom, and with equal honor. Hence, the states of goodness involved are equal, and it is impossible for a man to transcend these states of goodness by conducting himself better, either the one man in his joy or the other amid his suffering. And two goods, neither of which can possibly be better, are equal. For if things which are extrinsic to virtue can either diminish or increase virtue, then that which is honorable ceases to be the only good. If you grant this, honor has wholly perished. And why? Let me tell you. It is because no act is honorable that is done by an unwilling agent, that is compulsory. Every honorable act is voluntary. A lawyer with reluctance, complaints, cowardice, or fear, and it loses its best characteristic, self-approval. That which is not free cannot be honorable, for fear means slavery. The honorable is wholly free from anxiety and is calm. If it ever objects, laments, or regards anything as an evil, it becomes subject to disturbance and begins to flounder about amid great confusion. For on one side the semblance of right calls to it, on the other 
the suspicion of evil drags it back. Therefore, when a man is about to do something honorable, he should not regard any obstacles as evils, even though he regard them as inconvenient. But he should will to do the deed and do it willingly. For every honorable act is done without commands or compulsion. It is unalloyed and contains no admixture of evil. I know what you may reply to me at this point. Are you trying to make us believe that it does not matter whether a man feels joy, or whether he lies upon the rack and tires out his torturer? I might say in answer. Epicurus also maintains that the wise man, though he is being burned in the bull of Phalaris, will cry out, "'Tis pleasant, and concerns me not at all." Why need you wonder? If I maintain that he who reclines at a banquet, and the victim who stoutly withstands torture, possess equal goods, when Epicurus maintains a thing that is harder to believe, namely, that it is pleasant to be roasted in this way. But the reply which I do make is that there is great difference between joy and pain. If I am asked to choose, I shall seek the former and avoid the latter. The former is according to nature. The latter is contrary to it. So long as they are rated by this standard, there is a great gulf between. But when it comes to a question of the virtue involved, the virtue in each case is the same, whether it comes through joy or through sorrow. Vexation and pain and other inconveniences are of no consequence, for they are overcome by virtue. Just as the brightness of the sun dims all lesser lights, so virtue, by its own greatness, shatters and overwhelms all pains, annoyances, and wrongs. And wherever its radiance reaches, all lights which shine without the help of virtue are extinguished, and inconveniences, when they come in contact with virtue, play no more important a part than does a storm-cloud at sea. This can be proved to you by the fact that the good man will hasten unhesitatingly to any noble deed, even though he be confronted by the hangman, the torturer, and the stake, he will persist, regarding not what he must suffer, but what he must do, and he will entrust himself as readily to an honorable deed as he would to a good man. He will consider it advantageous to himself, safe, propitious and he will hold the same view concerning an honorable deed, even though it be fraught with sorrow and hardship. As concerning a good man who is poor or wasting away in exile. Come now, contrast a good man who is rolling in wealth with a man who has nothing, except that in himself he has all things. They will be equally good, though they experience unequal fortune. This same standard, as I have remarked, is to be applied to things as well as to men. Virtue is just as praiseworthy if it dwells in a sound and free body as in one which is sickly or in bondage. Therefore, as regards your own virtue also, you will not praise it any more, if fortune has favored it by granting you a sound body, than if fortune has endowed you with a body that is crippled in some member since that would mean rating a master low because he is dressed like a slave. For all those things over which chance holds sway are chattels. Money, person, position, they are weak, shifting, 
prone to perish, and of uncertain tenure. On the other hand, the works of virtue are free and unsubdued, neither more worthy to be sought when fortune treats them kindly, nor less worthy when any adversity weighs upon them. Now friendship in the case of men corresponds to desirability in the case of things. You would not, I fancy, love a good man if he were rich any more than if he were poor. Nor would you love a strong and muscular person more than one who was slender and of delicate constitution. Accordingly, neither will you seek or love a good thing that is mirthful and tranquil more than one that is full of perplexity and toil. Or, if you do this, you will, in the case of two equally good men, care more for him who is neat and well-groomed than for him who is dirty and unkempt. You would next go so far as to care more for a good man who is sound in all his limbs, and without blemish, than for one who is weak or purblind, and gradually your fastidiousness would reach to such a point that, of two equally just and prudent men, you would choose him who has long curling hair. Whenever the virtue in each one is equal, the inequality in their other attributes is not apparent, for all other things are not parts, but merely accessories. Would any man judge his children so unfairly as to care more for a healthy son than for one who is sickly, or for a tall child of unusual stature more than for one who is short or of middling height? Wild beasts show no favoritism among their offspring. They lie down in order to suckle all alike. Birds make fair distribution of their food. Ulysses hastens back to the rocks of his Ithaca as eagerly as Agamemnon speeds to the kingly walls of Mycenae. For no man loves his native land because it is great. He loves it because it is his own. And what is the purpose of all this? That you may know that virtue regards all her works in the same light, as if they were her children showing equal kindness to all and still deeper kindness to those which encounter hardships. For even parents lean with more affection towards those of their offspring for whom they feel pity. Virtue, too, does not necessarily love more deeply those of her works which she beholds in trouble and under heavy burdens, but, like good parents, she gives them more of her fostering care. Why is no good greater than any other good? It is because nothing can be more fitting than that which is fitting, and nothing more level than that which is level. You cannot say that one thing is more equal to a given object than another thing. Hence also nothing is more honorable than that which is honorable. Accordingly, if all the virtues are by nature equal, the three varieties of goods are equal. This is what I mean. There is an equality between feeling joy with self-control and suffering pain with self-control. The joy in the one case does not surpass in the other the steadfastness of soul that gulps down the groan when the victim is in the clutches of the torturer. Goods of the first kind are desirable, while those of the second are worthy of admiration. And in each case they are none the less equal because whatever inconvenience attaches to the latter is compensated by the qualities of the good, which is so much greater. Any man who believes them to be unequal is turning his gaze away from the virtues themselves. 
and is surveying mere externals. True goods have the same weight and the same width. The spurious sort contain much emptiness. Hence, when they are weighed in the balance, they are found wanting, although they look imposing and grand to the gaze. Yes, my dear Lucilius, the good which true reason approves is solid and everlasting. It strengthens the spirit and exalts it, so that it will always be on the heights. But those things which are thoughtlessly praised, and are goods in the opinion of the mob, merely puff us up with empty joy. And again, those things which are feared as if they were evils merely inspire trepidation in men's minds. For the mind is disturbed by the semblance of danger, just as animals are disturbed. Hence, it is without reason that both these things distract and sting the spirit. The one is not worthy of joy, nor the other of fear. It is reason alone that is unchangeable, that holds fast to its decisions. For reason is not a slave to the senses, but a ruler over them. Reason is equal to reason, as one straight line to another. Therefore, virtue also is equal to virtue. Virtue is nothing else than right reason. All virtues are reasons. Reasons are reasons, if they are right reasons. If they are right, they are also equal. As reason is, so also are actions. Therefore, all actions are equal. For since they resemble reason, they also resemble each other. Moreover, I hold that actions are equal to each other in so far as they are honorable and right actions. There will be, of course, great differences according as the material varies, as it becomes now broader and now narrower, now glorious and now base, now manifold in scope and now limited. However, that which is best in all these cases is equal. They are all honorable. In the same way, all good men, in so far as they are good, are equal. There are indeed differences of age, one is older, another younger, of body. One is comely, another is ugly. Of fortune. This man is rich, that man poor. This one is influential, powerful, and well-known to cities and peoples. That man is unknown to most and is obscure. But all, in respect of that wherein they are good, are equal. The senses do not decide upon things good and evil. They do not know what is useful and what is not useful. They cannot record their opinion unless they are brought face to face with a fact. They can neither see into the future nor recollect the past, and they do not know what results from what. But it is from such knowledge that a sequence and succession of actions is woven, and a unity of life is created, a unity which will proceed in a straight course. Reason, therefore, is the judge of good and evil. That which is foreign and external she regards as dross, and that which is neither good nor evil she judges as merely accessory, insignificant, and trivial. For all her good resides in the soul. But there are certain goods which reason regards as primary, to which she addresses herself purposely. These are, for example, victory, 
good children, and the welfare of one's country. Certain others she regards as secondary. These become manifest only in adversity. For example, equanimity in enduring severe illness or exile. Certain goods are indifferent. These are no more according to nature than contrary to nature, as, for example, a discreet gait and a sedate posture in a chair. For sitting is an act that is not less according to nature than standing or walking. The two kinds of goods which are of a higher order are different. The primary are according to nature, such as deriving joy from the dutiful behavior of one's children and from the well-being of one's country. The secondary are contrary to nature, such as fortitude in resisting torture, or in enduring thirst when illness makes the vitals feverish. What then, you say, can anything that is contrary to nature be a good? Of course not, but that in which this good takes its rise is sometimes contrary to nature. For being wounded, wasting away over a fire, being afflicted with bad health, such things are contrary to nature, but it is in accordance with nature for a man to preserve an indomitable soul amid such distresses. To explain my thought briefly, the material with which a good is concerned is sometimes contrary to nature, but a good itself never is contrary, since no good is without reason, and reason is in accordance with nature. What, then, you ask, is reason? It is copying nature. And what, you say, is the greatest good that man can possess? It is to conduct oneself according to what nature wills. There is no doubt, says the objector, that peace affords more happiness when it has not been assailed than when it has been recovered at the cost of great slaughter. There is no doubt also, he continues, that health which has not been impaired affords more happiness than health which has been restored to soundness by means of force, as it were, and by endurance of suffering after serious illness that threaten life itself. And similarly, there will be no doubt that joy is a greater good than a soul's struggle to endure to the bitter end the torments of wounds or burning at the stake. By no means, for things that result from hazard admit of wide distinctions, since they are rated according to their usefulness in the eyes of those who experience them but with regard to goods. The only point to be considered is that they are in agreement with nature, and this is equal in the case of all goods. When at a meeting of the Senate we vote in favor of someone's motion, it can be said, A is more in accord with the motion than B. All alike vote for the same motion. I make the same statement with regard to virtues. They are all in accord with nature, and I make it with regard to goods also. They are all in accord with nature. One man dies young, another in old age, and still another in infancy, having enjoyed nothing more than a mere glimpse out into life. They have all been equally subject to death, even though death has permitted the one to proceed farther along the pathway of life, has cut off the life of the second in his flower, and broken off the life of the third at its very beginning. Some get their release at the dinner-table, 
others extend their sleep into the sleep of death, some are blotted out during dissipation. Now contrast with these persons individuals who have been pierced by the sword, or bitten to death by snakes, or crushed in ruins, or tortured piecemeal out of existence by the prolonged twisting of their sinews. Some of these departures may be regarded as better, some as worse, but the act of dying is equal in all. The methods of ending life are different, but the end is one and the same. Death has no degrees of greater or less, for it has the same limit in all instances, the finishing of life. The same thing holds true, I assure you, concerning goods. You will find one amid circumstances of pure pleasure, another amid sorrow and bitterness. The one controls the favors of fortune, the other overcomes her onslaughts. Each is equally a good, although the one travels a level and easy road, and the other a rough road. At the end of them all is the same. They are goods, they are worthy of praise, they accompany virtue and reason. Virtue makes all the things that it acknowledges equal to one another. You need not wonder that this is one of our principles. We find mentioned in the works of Epicurus two goods, of which his supreme good or blessedness is composed, namely, a body free from pain and a soul free from disturbance. These goods, if they are complete, do not increase, for how can that which is complete increase? The body is, let us suppose, free from pain. What increase can there be to this absence of pain? The soul is composed and calm. What increase can there be to this tranquillity? Just as fair weather, purified into the purest brilliancy, does not admit of a still greater degree of clearness. So, when a man takes care of his body and of his soul, weaving the texture of his good from both, his condition is perfect, and he has found the consummation of his prayers, if there is no commotion in his soul or pain in his body. Whatever delights fall to his lot over and above these two things do not increase his supreme good. They merely season it, so to speak, and add spice to it. For the absolute good of man's nature is satisfied with peace in the body and peace in the soul. I can show you at this moment in the writings of Epicurus a graded list of goods just like that of our own school for there are some things, he declares, which he prefers should fall to his lot, such as bodily rest free from all inconvenience, and relaxation of the soul as it takes delight in the contemplation of its own goods. And there are other things which, though he would prefer that they did not happen, he nevertheless praises and approves. For example, the kind of resignation in times of ill health and serious suffering to which I alluded a moment ago and which Epicurus displayed on that last and most blessed day of his life. For he tells us that he had to endure excruciating agony from a diseased bladder and from an ulcerated stomach, so acute that it permitted no increase of pain. And yet, he says, that day was none the less happy. And no man can spend such a day in happiness unless he possesses the supreme good. We therefore find mention, even by Epicurus, 
those goods which one would prefer not to experience which however because circumstances have decided thus must be welcomed and approved and placed on a level with the highest goods we cannot say that the good which has rounded out a happy life the good for which epicurus rendered thanks in the last words he uttered is not equal to the greatest allow me excellent lucilius to utter a still bolder word if any goods could be greater than others i should prefer those which seem harsh to those which are mild and alluring and should pronounce them greater for it is more of an accomplishment to break one's way through difficulties than to keep joy within bounds it requires the same use of reason i am fully aware for a man to endure prosperity well and also to endure misfortune bravely that man may be just as brave who sleeps in front of the ramparts without fear of danger when no enemy attacks the camp as the man who when the tendons of his legs have been severed holds himself up on his knees and does not let fall his weapons but it is to the blood-stained soldier returning from the front that men cry well done thou hero and therefore i should bestow greater praise upon the goods that have stood trial and show courage and have fought it out with fortune should i hesitate whether to give greater praise to the maimed and shriveled hand of musius than to the uninjured hand of the bravest man in the world there stood musius despising the enemy and despising the fire and watched his hand as it dripped blood over the fire on his enemy's altar until porsena envying the fame of the hero whose punishment he was advocating ordered the fire to be removed against the will of the victim why should i not reckon this good among the primary goods and deem it in so far greater than those other goods which are unattended by danger and have made no trial of fortune as it is a rarer thing to have overcome a foe with a hand lost than with a hand armed what then you say shall you desire this good for yourself of course i shall for this is a thing that a man cannot achieve unless he can also desire it should i desire instead to be allowed to stretch out my limbs for my slaves to massage or to have a woman or a man changed into the likeness of a woman pull my finger joints i cannot help believing that musius was all the more lucky because he manipulated the flames as calmly as if he were holding out his hand to the manipulator he had wiped out all his previous mistakes he finished the war unarmed and maimed and with that stump of a hand he conquered two kings farewell end of letter sixty six recording by john van stan savannah georgia